But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? Ten things that what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reward, and you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response when a pigeon pecking the disc. Welcome back to Spit and Twitch's The Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Brightback. Well, so welcome to episode, uh, let's see, 23, that's season two, episode four, and uh, today on the podcast, another biologist. We're going heavy on the biology this year. Last season was more psychologists, so this is just the way it's turned out, of course, but it's Amy Sue Dunlap from uh, the University of Missouri uh, at St. Louis. Uh, she's in the biology department there. Uh, she has a BA and a BS in biology, history, and English. Wow, that's cool. We'll talk some history. I, I like history. I have a minor in history. I'd have a minor if I told the registrar at Western how many credits I had in history. You know, this isn't interesting to you. Uh, that was at the University of Memphis in 2000. She got her uh, MS in bio, uh, biological science uh, at Northern Arizona University in 2002, and her PhD in ecology, evolution, and behavior in the University of Minnesota in 2009. Um, her work and her the work of people in her lab in her lab really generally concentrate on the evolution of cognition using experimental methods, looking at things like foraging and bees, the, the, the ecological value of things like forgetting, um, all kinds of stuff like this, stuff that really is about, and I've been talking about this already this season, is about the sort of, I guess the way to put it is the uh, intersection maybe of psychology and biology. So we've got people from biology doing stuff in behavior. We've got people in psychology looking at stuff but evolution and uh I think we make all we all make each other better. Let's go with that. Uh, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about maybe she's a St. Louis Blues fan. I don't know. I'm just gonna say that she is. That's my second favorite team besides the Montreal Canadiens, who didn't win the Stanley Cup but came very close this year. Anyway, that's beside the point. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amy Sudan. <laughs> Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. How do we know each other, actually know each other, know each other? Do we? Well, I worked on seed caching and birds for a little bit, okay. so I was very familiar with your papers from that. Oh, oh boy. Okay. Boy, somebody read that stuff. That's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and we know each other through Twitter, right? Yeah, through Twitter, yeah. Okay, mostly, I think mostly our interaction's been there, because um, I've run into stuff some of the stuff I think we'll talk about today mm -hmm. uh the uh stuff on the sort of experimental evolution stuff and I really want to dive into that a bit because it's really cool um and I, I remember reading that back well when it came out and being kind of excited by it so because I've always been into that sort of adaptive specialization of learning preparedness kind of thing so yeah, yeah. so you're in St. Louis right yes so you're a hockey fan I am actually are you a blues fan these days, yeah. <laughs> it's impossible to be here. Okay, that's I, fair. I lived in Finland for a few years and oh, became nice. a hockey fan there. And yeah, who, uh, who did you cheer for in Finland? Well, obviously the Finnish national team. That's the most important. But I mean, in, in Liga, which is the number one league, did you have a team? 
Yeah, I, I would go to the games of um, PFCO, which is the second yeah, yeah. team in Helsinki. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Yeah, I follow Finnish fun. hockey because uh, I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan, and uh, uh, there are let's see, uh, Arturi Lekkinen, Jesperi Kotkaniemi, and um, uh, Yolo Armia are all from Finland. Uh, so, and of course, the best, one of the greatest captains the Montreal Canadiens ever had, Saku Koivu, is from Finland. Yeah. So. Uh, but yeah, a friend of mine uh, uh, is a he couldn't believe it two years ago when, when St. Louis won the Stanley cup, he was just, he said, I, he kept texting me saying, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. The city went, went nuts. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's good. They should. I mean, they deserved it. It's been a long time. Um, So you mentioned you spent some time in Finland. I like to get into people's sort of origin stories. Take me back to Finland and wherever, how you got interested in all this stuff that you're doing now. Yeah. I, uh, during undergrad, I'd grown up in the, southern U.S. and I went to school in the southern U.S. and I wanted to do something else and Finland seemed very different. (laughs) So so I went there as an exchange student and then I stayed for an extra year. Cool. Worked in a coffee shop and learned all about boreal animal ecology. I bet, yeah. It it was great. I mean, the of a friend, in fact, who is in um, you mentioned the, the food caching stuff. He's actually thanked on one of my earlier papers because he was a lab tech at the time, a guy named um, Mike Child. And Mike moved to Finland, like he, him and his family moved to Finland, and he learned to speak Finnish and the whole thing. Which that can't be easy, right? It's so hard. Yeah, yeah I was in intensive Finnish classes, and I do okay, but I, <laughs> yeah, okay, it was yeah. not. It was not. <laughs> No, and I was there fair. for a conference a couple of years ago, and that was immersion again. <laughs> oh, and did it come back? Were you able to kind of freak people out by being able to say things in Finnish? Yeah, or at least be able to find my way around enough. And yeah, right, <laughs> so. right. My daughter was in uh, Sweden a couple of years ago for also for a conference. Um, she does this kind of she's in the family business. Okay. And uh, so she's a PhD student. And uh, she was saying that Sweden was OK because you just look at words and go. Okay, I, I can figure that out. Of course, Finnish isn't even an Indo-European language, so there's all yeah. kinds of craziness. Yeah, thirteen grammatical cases. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's just they ought to simplify it. I think they should do something about that. They I mean, it, it may, I mean, I'm sure it makes complete sense. I imagine if you're Finnish. Yeah. Um, so, what, what? What did you? What sort of? How did you get bitten by the bug? Bad choice of words for you. Uh, looking at ecology, evolution, etc. Was it an undergrad thing that got you really going, or? Yeah, I took uh, undergrad classes, and uh, I was actually a triple major in undergrad, which is That's kind insane. of unusual. Yeah, yeah. So I did history and English also. So, so I did biology electives for all of my history and English electives, and I was running out of classes to take. <laughs> okay. So I took a class in uh, evolution of cognition, and it was a special topics class, and uh, we used a Shuttleworth book that had just come out. Yes, and uh, that was just blew me away. Yeah. So. It's an amazing was, book. Yeah. It was great. I was working on voles at the time. So we were looking at mate choice and, oh, cool. um, you know, set marking and prairie voles. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, There's some really good the spatial stuff with voles too, going way back to Steve Gollin stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, love that stuff. Um, the, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so I, t- I took that class and I had some uh, applications into grad programs. But after I read that class and read about seed caching birds, I was like, I don't nice. want to do any of that stuff. So I had an application into Northern Arizona University where Russ Balda was. Sure. Yeah. So I sent him an email and switched my application to his lab and went there. That's <laughs> for awesome. Masters. Yeah. Right. And then so and if you're so you were there, then what'd you do for where'd you and your PhD was at and I can't In Minnesota. remember Minnesota. Yeah. Right. Speaking of hockey, yes. 
yeah, that's a very, <laughs> very hockey voice. Yeah, I wanted to learn more uh, modeling and I wanted right. to learn operant techniques. And at the time, Dave Stevens was one of sure. the people that was doing all of those things. And so totally. it was yeah. Corvids to Corvids. Nice. Um, did you find generally, and I've, it's funny, the first season of this, which I did in 2015, last time I had a sabbatical, it's, these are, this is a sabbatical project, oh, yeah. uh, was um, everybody was a psychologist. Okay. So we all, I mean, our field is weird because it's sort of two things at once, at least two, maybe three if you throw in neuroscience. Um, but this year, for some reason, it's been more biologists. Uh, have you, oh, yeah. yeah. Have you found at all that, and I've been asking everybody the same thing, that generally it kind of, is it difficult at all thinking sometimes like a psychologist? I think uh, for me, it has been beneficial to have a lot of psychology training. So in, in my master's, I minored in psychology and okay. did a lot of pretty, you know, hardcore learning theory. And yeah. in my postdoc, I was able to be a trainee in our center for cognitive sciences. Oh, cool. And so uh, that got me an office in the psychology building and, right. you know, an excuse to take more classes. And that, that's been healthy because it's, it's been helpful because I think the nomenclature in psychology is a huge barrier to a lot of biologists. Yeah. We've, I mean, every, every sort of discipline has its own, uh, I was going to say terms of art, but I might also say <clears throat> gatekeeping because um, yeah. it does end up kind of being like that. Uh, and it goes the other way too. I, I know that I, I've, I've, when I was early in my grad career talking about, um, using terms, using terms like optimality and people go, you, 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 you don't, yeah. don't, not like that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I know exactly what it's like, but from the other side, I think one of the great things that biologists have brought over the years uh, and zoologists to the sort of comparative cognition, animal cognition area is the real understanding of evolutionary theory. Um, Evolution is this great thing that it's so simple that anybody can misunderstand it. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> um, I don't know where I got that quote from David Sherry, but he told me that it's anonymous. Uh, he doesn't know where, where it came from, but maybe it's from him. And, you know, it, the problem is that it's, it is so simple and you think you get it and you actually don't have a clue. And there's a lot of psychologists years ago. It's way better than it used to be. But when I was first starting out in grad school in the late 80s, my God, I um, and you know, you'd read things and go, but I, I remember going to Sarah Shuttleworth and saying, does this person understand what they're talking about? And she go, Oh no. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, good. So I'm not an idiot, <laughs> yeah. you know, cause I'm, I'm 23 reading something going, I, I don't think you're right. I'm not going to name a name, but this person, it was really annoying. And I, I just, and like I said, I went to Sarah and I said, I don't think this is correct. And she said, no, 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 it's not. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, so it's great. In fact, that, you know, the world's changed quite a bit and it's become a much more common, the idea of people just throwing rats in boxes is not that interesting to most people, but the idea of not that that's a bad thing. And the idea of only doing sort of modeling stuff, at least in our area, isn't something most people are interested in, but when you put them together. Um, and this is something that, I mean, one of the cool things you've done is this experimental evolution stuff. Uh, and like I said, I, I remember when this first came out looking at, and it's Drosophila, right? Um, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so walk me through that a little bit. Like, first of all, what is experimental evolution? I don't think a lot of the listeners to the podcast probably know that term. Yeah. I think a lot of people think about artificial selection, you know, which is what we've done to domesticated animals and yeah. dogs and, um, that has a long history in biology and psychology, actually. Yeah, sure. But uh, in experimental evolution, you are setting up environmental situation mm -hmm. for a population of animals. 
yep. that you're going to keep in or, or plants, you know, population of organisms. It came out of the microbial world. So in there, you're going to keep okay. them in that for many generations. And yes. then you see what evolves. Yes. And the thing that's different between experimental evolution and artificial selection is that in artificial selection, you're selecting directly on a very specific phenotype. Okay. You know, like I'm going to take the, the 90th percentile of right. this, say, learning score. In experimental evolution, many things could evolve to solve the same problem. Of course, yeah. Uh, which is really great in cognition because you can think about a lot of things that could be solved through the sensory system without invoking, say, mm -hmm. fancy learning mechanisms or, mm -hmm. or other things. And so that leaves it really interesting to me. Right. So what happens in these experiments? These are, these have to be pretty long-term things, right? Like they're not, yeah. you don't, this is, you don't collect this data over a week and a half, right? Yeah. These are, these are years of, of work. And yeah. that's how I ended up working on Drosophila because I worked on bird cognition. Yeah, that would take a while. Yeah. yeah so, and I didn't really want to work a lot on of flies. Space. Yeah, you need a lot of you need like three lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. But but flies are great because you can build a whole world for them. You know, you can catch them from the wild, have a genetically variable population, and you can choose something about their behavior. And I looked at where females choose to lay eggs. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and like you looked at that and you looked at, like I, I sort of teased, if you want to say that at the mm -hmm. beginning, you looked at the idea of sort of preparedness, which is a, it's funny. Basically, it seems to me that most psychologists now accept the idea that there are species differences. Yeah. But also, yeah. also they, they accept the idea that, you know, um, different species learn they, we all pretty much learn some mechanisms we all share. And when I say we, it includes us. Yeah. But it's also the case that there are some special things. And the idea of preparedness goes back to, you know, the early taste aversion stuff from. Yeah, from Garcia. Before, yeah, even before I was born. And uh, it's, it's one of those things that you don't hear as much about anymore. I think, I think it's probably because everybody kind of accepts it now. But you went and said, what we're going to do is look at how this kind of thing evolves. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, it avoids the post-hoc explanations, which is all we had, right? It's like, oh, well, this is, we get this weird result. And well, that makes sense because, you know, monkeys should be afraid of snake-like objects or, yeah. which <laughs> is right. so beautiful literature. Yeah. Story. yeah. I, I think preparedness kind of blossomed in the phobia literature Very much for so, a while. Yes. That's right. But, but I think it hit a dead end. And that dead end was being able to test things and having a theoretical background yeah. for it. So, so yeah, when, um, when thinking about flies, we had already done an experiment evolving enhanced yes. learning and preference. It's like, well, heck, we can test this. Like, sure. let's just let's just vary the reliability of one modality of stimuli yeah. in predicting fitness, and yeah. let's go for it and see see what happens. And uh, yeah, and I mean, one of the it's funny when I read the read the paper, I went, I didn't realize there was that sort of um, reply that someone wrote. And, yeah. and I read, cause I, I never, like I said, I read this thing whenever it was seven years ago. I don't think that was there or it wasn't there when I, I maybe I didn't pay attention to it. <laughs> That's certainly yeah. possible. I'm, I shiny objects and I just go follow them. So I read that response and I get what the person's saying, but I'm also going to tell you that it's like saying, well, you didn't do an entire research program in this paper. <laughs> That's I took the I the criticism is well founded in some respects, yeah. but you found a thing, and an important thing, um, 
the idea that, you know, uh, there'd be learning uh, that, that, that certain modalities would fit with certain things. Just because there's not a double dissociation kind of thing doesn't mean you don't have yeah. a real effect. And, and I think that that comes from, you know, a conflation of preparedness and selective associations. And selective associations are a special, awesome yes. case of preparedness. And if yes. you go back to Seligman's original preparedness stuff, mm -hmm. we, we argue this in a book chapter that's coming out this fall, but there's a nice. lot of mechanisms that can result in biological preparedness. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I, I'm not, and I'm not trying to trash the person who wrote that because I get yeah, what they were no. saying. I get what they were saying, but the, I think the key point is here, this is some of the first stuff where this has really been done. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a lot of questions remaining. Yeah. Um, well, the good, good science does that, right? It yeah. answers one question and asks a whole bunch more because that actually gives you a, what we like to call a career. Um, <laughs> so it's really, anyway, I love this paper. It's really neat. And it's something I think I, there'll be a link in the show notes for people to take a look at this. It is really fun to read. Um, I really liked, the methods are great, but I like the whole idea of this sort of super long-term stuff. I remember thinking about this kind of thing when I was in grad school. And again, thinking about birds and thinking, how yeah. there's no way I could do that. <laughs> I need the largest grant ever. Um, so this is, this is actually, it's, it's very cool stuff. Um, so, and this is something that you kind of haven't been, well, you lost these guys during your- Yeah, I lost, like a, I lost a lies during COVID. So with the preparedness, I've, I've not been successful in getting the big grants that it takes to no, that's, tackle that's, preparedness that's, again. Really? But, that surprises yeah, me but, because I mean, it's so cool. I, okay. It's really cool. But I think it falls in this sort of gap between people that want to see you do the genomics and do CRISPR on them and all of this. Right. And then the people that think, oh, well, of course you're going to, anything you select evolves. This isn't, you know, interesting. And of course okay. that's not the case. No, that's good. That doesn't seem yeah. like a criticism to me, but that's, yeah. I, but I see what you mean. But we have gotten grants for the other part of our flies where we evolved enhanced learning. And we right. found out that that's very generalized females that learn about where to lay eggs. Yeah. They learn about all kinds of things better. That, and that, see, this is the kind of thing that, and when you look at something like, for example, uh, looking at specializations versus general process things. Yeah. And those are, those have been huge questions in, in psychology since, well, 1879 when mm -hmm. Wundt started psychology. So, I mean, those, they're big questions, but also um, no matter what kind of result you get, and this Sarah used to say this to me, the best kind of science is the kind that no matter what kind of result you get, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's what's, what happens with this kind of stuff. So that's, I love it. I just, I, I can't say enough about how much I, I like this kind of work. It's, it's, it's fun and it leads you in weird directions. You know, it's the it's, best, right? we've had little predators in the lab. We've had praying mantids in the lab looking at predator learning and nice. we've been able to sequence the flies and look at brain gene expression and see what's going on there. And we see really cool interactions with the immune system. Oh, ever neat. Yeah. It's just neat. The, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I just, never thought uh, I would do that kind of stuff. Isn't it the greatest? Like when you, when you think back to your, I don't know, when you're in a postdoc or you're a grad student or something like that, and you think, I, I, I didn't think I'd be able to do this. I, don't, I mean, if you're anything like I am, which it'd probably be bad if you were, because you have fewer people like me, but it's the case that, I don't know, I'm constantly amazed that I can do anything. <laughs> so fun to learn new stuff, but it is, it, it, it is. I don't think it ever not be, is, is not daunting. Well, well, oh, of course. And I think if it's not daunting, you're probably kidding yourself. Right. I mean, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, 
it's funny, the number of people, anybody who's ever good, any good at anything is they always seem like they're like, Oh, I don't know. I was just in the right place at the right time. And you know, <laughs> no, you really know what you're doing. Uh, anyway, it's very cool stuff. Um, some of the other stuff you've been working on, uh, looking at bumblebees and uh, comparing sort of personal and social information. I like this kind of stuff because bumblebees, our last guest, Carolyn Strang, worked with bumblebees as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And bumblebees are, and I don't know much about them. I just, they're the stupid bees, right? I would <laughs> I argue with that. <laughs> I, I kid. I kid. I was hoping to get a reaction. Um, but they're not, we tend to think of, we think of honeybees as being yeah. these you Amazing know, communication, language, communication, social learning. Social yeah. learning. Um, and bumblebees aren't really as much like that, right? So you, I guess you would expect to find, well, what were you expecting to find when you did this work? Yeah. So, you know, people first showed that bumblebees can socially learn around 2015. Mm-hmm. And, and people have studied whether that's some sort of social facilitation or whether they're matching the, the place. People yeah. had done work on the mechanisms. And I honestly, Honestly, I went into it thinking, well, social learning's not special. <laughs> <You know? laughs> See, and, that's, that's, that's a tell right there. You're not a psychologist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little cantankerous, but, yeah. but how would you do that? Well, you would make them, you know, two types of information economically identical. Yes. And you would, you would look for, uh, you would look for, for things that would change from that. Yes, yes. And of course we end up finding, of course, social information is special. <laughs> so... Um, but that, but I think it, it shows you the cool things you can do with bees because our bumblebees, at least, um, y- you can have them in a little arena that they're flying in. Yeah. They'll visit all kinds of fake flowers. You can control everything in that situation, like right. you would in any sort of operant study. Right. Videotape them, yeah. and you can test a lot of cool things in decision making with them. Yeah, it's funny. An old friend of mine years ago, Mike Boisvert, worked on timing in bumblebees, and yeah. I, I remember him. Um, uh, talking about how, well, I mean, nobody in that lab at the time was working on, on bees. He was in Dave Sherry's lab and they were all working on birds and he wanted to work on bees. And I don't, I guess birds and bees, maybe that's why, I don't know. Uh, and, <laughs> they both fly. Yeah, they will fly, uh, get some bats. Uh, and it, it's, it's one of these things where he was saying part of the problem working with them was you think you can do everything you can with any other animal and you kind of can and, and, but you can't. <laughs> Which I mean, I think I'm paraphrasing. It takes a lot obviously. of patience, I think. It must, yeah. right? Um, so social information, you wouldn't, I mean, okay, again, me from the outside, not being a bumblebee guy. And because I have this bias thinking honeybees are these wonderful things that, you know, make our planet work or something. Uh, <laughs> so I would think of bumblebees not really paying attention at all or very little to social learn uh, information. And you didn't really find that, right? Yeah, well, we we found that I, with this study and some related ones, where yep. uh, in various forms of review and su- submission, they attend to social information in a really flexible way. That's wild. So uh, they can learn to match where conspecifics are. Okay. But if where conspecifics are is now non-rewarding, uh-huh. they will avoid the location of conspecifics. Oh, that's cool. More than you would predict, and I think right. it's. It's arguably a form of pessimism because they're treating that class of right. stimuli as if it's yeah. worse than it that actually is. So, and people had shown that with uh, footprints of bees, bumblebees can attend to the scent marks that other bees have left. Okay, and, that's cool. And you hell. can condition them appetitively and aversively to those yes. marks, right? So, I think anything they can sense, they can learn about. 
I guess that makes sense. Um, it's wild. I, I, it's, it's funny, you know, you, you think about the, uh, you're always warned when you're start studying things like this is to don't try to get inside the head of the species you're studying because you can't think like them. Uh, and it's hard enough when it's a black cap chickadee or a dark eye junco, but when it's a freaking bumblebee. It's um, so hard with insects. I, th I think that's where people get wrong, make things wrong is that they're small and you think that I mean, you hear the, the stories in your intro psychology classes about how the way the rats were carried to the tea maze affected how they did. Sure. It's easier for us to think about that with vertebrates. And then you think it doesn't matter for small invertebrates, but it yeah. matters just as much. But it's yeah. a lot harder for us to, to get that sense of their world. But it, right. it's also very hard for us to, what are these micro differences in humidity that will change the decisions in my fruit flies? <laughs> the things that have to be controlled are, it's a lot. Yeah. And it's, it's, and there is always this temptation and I think it's, and I don't think people do it on purpose, but there's this temptation to anthropomorphize. So, you know, uh, I, I would, I always named all my animals. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would talk to them. I would say things like, you're going to have a good day, right? You're going to have a good, you're going to choose space over color today. That's, that's what we're going for, please. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, has your hippocampus and I don't know. Do you get like that at all with like bees and flies? I, I do feel bad when I have to freeze them after the experiment's over. No, that's fair. I, I get but, it. You know, yeah. you've been following them around with all of their choices. Uh, people do not feel that way about the flies. Uh, we do that's... horrible things to flies. You know. <laughs> that's true. But, <clears throat> yeah, I think that... Yeah. Uh, the, the human empathy doesn't extend as much. Not as well. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, yeah. well, the other, I, I killed a wasp nest in my gazebo the other day and I was really happy to do it. So people, people do not love the wasps. <laughs> yeah. I'm opposed to them. I, uh, if it was a bee's nest, I would have called somebody and said, could you move this somewhere with wasps? I'm going to weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. It's, you uh, can't move their nests anyway. No, no so. you can't. Yeah. No, you can't. And it's like, but I, this is where I sit and drink alcohol. Why are you here? Jerk. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, in my question. master's, uh, my advisor Russ Balda would he fired a student once for cussing at the birds? Wow! <laughs> because he felt that that was a disrespect for the animals. You know, you know that's, which I've always okay. appreciated. You know, yeah, that's so, fair. So we have our own best practices for invertebrates, but, right? You know, there are no you know Iacook protocols or, or anything no, no, like that that we have to do for invertebrates. That's the weird thing about them, right? I mean, and you can, and this has always been the argument with stuff with say octo octopuses, where you yeah. know an octopus is a pretty complicated animal, and you could do anything you want to it. I think that's changing now, maybe not with octopuses, but you know, um, you think about it with. Uh, I, I really do. I mean, the, again, I shouldn't try to get inside the the head of them. It's hard enough to just understand their umwelt, right? I mean, the yeah. idea that they can see patterns of polarized light and they have compound eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's, I'm it's sorry. really hard. To... That's, that's not my world. I can't imagine no. what that's like. Uh, but yeah, I, bee stuff's great. I, I, I love it. I, I'm just, I'm frightened of social insects. They're organized and they, yeah, they are organized. <laughs> I just and it's fun. not fun to get stung by them, but. Well, um... no, I, I was remember sitting down uh, at CO3 at a conference with Fred Dyer. We were just sitting beside each other at dinner. And I said, have you ever been stung? Yeah. And he started laughing his head off. He oh, said, yeah, he every, day, yeah. <laughs> every day, and he shows me his hand and I went, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I the bumblebees are, are a bit more amenable. So. Um... Right. Right. So and is that, that's true, right? I, I shouldn't be as afraid of a bumblebee as I should be uh, from yeah, a they're, honeybee. They're not as aggressive. Um, you know, honeybees can mark you with a pheromone that 
causes other honeybees to orient to you and sting you. So, okay, and they see. have that barb that comes out. So the yes. stinger gets stuck in you and it's pumping in the poison. Uh, bumblebees don't have that. Oh, I mean, they, I have a, they have they have a stinger, stinger, but yeah, they'll run out eventually as they keep stinging. You, oh, so. well, this is very good information. Yeah. This, this is no, seriously. Cause I can explain to people, my son, we've had a, oh. like a, there's a bumblebee and he freaks out and it's like, no, no. I don't, but now the idea that they can they can run out of venom, I'll, 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 I'll <laughs> yeah. let them know that. That's good. Yes, things are very rare in the lab. Yeah. Right. Um, so right now, people are mostly probably working in field stuff, right? Because of COVID yeah. and everything. Yeah. Uh, what kind of stuff you got going? Uh, a few different kinds of things. So a nice thing about bees is you can do these carefully controlled experiments in the lab. Mm-hmm. But we can take those out into the yeah, field outside, and not do yeah. the exact same things, but we can we can apply those and do... It's discrimination learning a little tubes so you can net a bumblebee you can do that so right so we we have some work happening on uh bumblebees mm-hmm. looking at cross-species comparisons in the wild and right and looking at how that might be related to how well they're doing right so right you know more behaviorally plastic bees might be doing better because we are losing some bumblebees and others are doing beautifully right so that makes a nice comparison. Right. We're looking at like urban to rural cognition differences. Cool stuff. Yeah, that's really neat. So one of the students, Rachel Brandt, is testing sweat bees with that. And right. she's doing some old school ethogram methods. Oh, that's so cool. And uh, she's finding differences in foraging on this, with the same species of bee on the same species of flower, depending on whether they're a city really? bee or a prairie bee. That's really cool. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. She's doing some brain gene expression and... Um, then we have a student oh. looking on, she's looking at color learning in okay. orchid bees, which is a neotropical bee that's also in Florida. So oh, okay. no one's worked on their vision really? and that's what she's doing. Yeah. So, and she's doing this like in Missouri or she's doing it in Florida? She's doing it in Florida. Okay. We were having some bees shipped up here, you know, to, to our zoo yep. uh, who was partnering with us, but they don't, they're, they're delicate bees. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so she's looking at color preferences and do their oh. color preferences change in the context of an odor? Oh, that's very they're cool. They're very well studied for collecting olfactory stimuli. Sure, this sure. is a species where the males collect olfactory stimuli, store them and put them out as perfume for sexual selection purposes. Oh, I've just learned a thing and I'm very oh, excited. They're so cool. <laughs> you should look them up. And there've been some great labs that have looked at this type of uh, olfactory perception, Yeah, yeah. but not the color. So right. that's what Andrea is doing. Yeah. That's oh, it's cool I, stuff. I, I got goosebumps and you told me about the, the males putting out the little, Oh, that's, I love stuff like that. It I, is it's, so cool. Yeah. It's one of these things that, and again, it, it's partially because insects are just so different that it's like you're studying an alien. Um, but it's kind of like studying. I mean, you said you've your degree is you had a triple major and you have history. It's kind of like, you know, looking back and say, thinking to yourself, what was it like to actually be in the Roman empire? And you actually can't even think like those people because it's yeah. so divorced from that, <laughs> but at least they're people, uh, you know, uh, that's wild. I, I love it. Um, <clears throat> so when you're teaching, do you like bringing in your own work, like talking about stuff you're doing and giving people uh, sort of a feel for how a working scientist works. Is that the sort of way you approach things or? Yeah. If it's, I do like to give examples from the lab Yeah, because then I can show the pictures of this is how it happened and this uh-huh. is how it was done. And 
they, they can look at that. So, and I teach an evolution of cognition class every other year, which is just the best. That must be the greatest thing to teach. Oh, it's so fun. I'm teaching it this fall too. And, um, it's kind of like every week it's what new, you know, spatial navigation, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> all yeah. the cool stuff in ants, you know, which captivated stuff, me as a the young ant stuff is so great. Um, uh, I love the stuff where, uh, you know, ants go out in this, the, the zigzag path, but they come straight back home yeah. and, they're, and they're navigating by the freaking stars. That's so cool. And, and that catches students, uh, you know, that catches oh, their, <laughs> and they want to do the work on the class and they get excited when they're coming yes. to class to talk about the papers. And yes. that's very lucky to get to teach a class that maybe students, you know, they're taking it as an elective. Yeah. There's some psychology students in there too. So I get a nice sure. mix and it's maybe, you know, not applicable to what they think they're going to do, but they're going to learn something that'll stick with them. Right. And and I get to talk about fun papers. <laughs> so. oh, it's the best. No, it's the best. I, I did a yeah. course, a comparative, just a comparative cognition course straight up one a couple of years ago uh, as a special topics because we're a really small school and we, if we had a course like that every year or something, I wouldn't, my course would be canceled all the time because it wouldn't be enough students. So um, I got to do it and it was just so much fun and, and just talking about all this interesting stuff and people saying things like, uh, oh, that can't be true. Oh, that's not really. And you'd show them results. You show them how the experiments are done. And they're like, oh, that's so neat. You know, uh, like I said, the, the, the ant stuff, the, uh, geez, uh, call it Cartwright and Smith stuff with bees about how they know, like the, the navigation stuff and, 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 and the, the vector stuff. It just, it's mind boggling that stuff. Yeah. Uh, bees are so cool. Um, it's cool to use invertebrate examples too, because I think yeah. students come in the class and they're thinking about dolphins and they're thinking about primates and yes. all of that's cool too. Oh, it's all wonderful stuff. Don't um, misunderstand me. Yes. But, but it's, it's great to turn, I especially do this for my animal behavior class. I love bringing in the creatures, the critters that they don't think about. Exactly. <laughs> and, right. Um, exactly. That makes it really fun. It really does. Um, so you're, I mean, you just, you finished up in 2009, you did a postdoc. This is a, yeah, you're, this is a, pretty new like you're an associate professor it says yep. now so you just got promoted recently yeah congratulations. In yeah congratulations. <laughs> yeah so that's a relief actually oh yeah well, i remember yeah. <laughs> it's a relief as much as you say to yourself it doesn't matter it's not going to change anything and then the day after you get tenure you go no well, i'm not doing that <laughs> first time you, <laughs> the first time you say that you think to yourself like i, I could have said that yesterday and it wouldn't have been that big a deal but this felt great yeah, um, a lot less, less so it's pretty great because like you're I mean, compared to me, at least you're, it's pretty early on in your career. Um, have you found anything that, I don't know, give any sort of advice for people who are early uh, career oh. people or even people, let's say ending graduate school or whatever about just navigating academia? Yeah, I think it is a stressful period for people. And I think everyone's situation is different. Right. But I think you have to remember that everyone is, equally under pressure. <laughs> so I remember I was at uh, a sick bee conference, a society for integrative and comparative biology. Yeah. And I was in my second year as a professor and I go to have lunch with a bunch of other people who were also in their second or third year as professors. And we start out the lunch like, yeah, things are going well. And then it was like, no, things, I messed up this and I messed up this. It was refreshing to know that these people that I had yeah. come up with and who were respected and are awesome were yeah. having the same types of things as you learn how to mentor and you learn how to mentor mentoring, you know, grad students is very different and mentoring sure. undergrads is very different. And each mm -hmm. student is very different. And, uh, it's a constant, it's a constantly shifting it is. 
it's a shifting world. So yeah, it really is. And I, one of the things that I've found over the years is that you know, you're right. When you sit down with people who are at the same part of their career as you are, um, all it takes is one person to say, "Yeah, I, I forgot to do this work for a committee I was on." So it was like I didn't <laughs> yeah. do my homework and I felt stupid. And then everybody goes, "Oh, I did that too," or whatever. Right? Um, I can't yeah, get. <laughs> I can't get my, my, I was trying to order touch screens and they never came and the purchasing guy <laughs> yeah. didn't wanted to yell at the people on the phone. I said, don't yell at them. They're the only people that make them in the world. This has actually happened with me. Oh, this, yeah. this is like, I think everybody's had the case where ago. they ordered accidentally like three times more. So <laughs> like, oh, I've done a that. really common problems. So, oh, yeah. But if you like what you're doing and yeah. you're fascinated with your research and it's, then you have students that are interested yeah. and sometimes they pull you into the orchid bee world. And how fun is that to get to learn about best, right? some other animal that you've never even thought about? And uh... yeah, it's the best. And that kind of thing, when it happens, it makes you realize that maybe you're doing some good because maybe you helped, you know, influence somebody that way and they're influencing you. It's, 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 uh, it's great to see students go off and do neat things. Oh, it's the best. It's know? so, it's so cool. Um, now, you have a unique thing. Well, it's not unique, but it's a little bit more, yet a little bit more of a challenge than most people, right? Because you're dealing with a chronic illness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's that been like? That's been different. So, <clears throat> so I have multiple sclerosis and a couple right. of other things because illness seems to attract illness. Oh, sure. You may and, as well uh, have more than one. Yeah. Yeah. So that hit in grad school. I was on bed rest for a very long time. Okay. Uh, you know, having to navigate that was right. very interesting to not be able to do microscope work anymore or not be able to stand up for more than mm -hmm. two hours at a time or right. just having the doctor's appointments. Right. So, so at that point I replanned my career. So uh, I saw a health psychologist who is a professor at the medical school and right. he reminded me that in an academic career, first of all, there's a lot of flexibility. Yeah. And That's second right. of all, for your whole career, you're not the person standing up at the bench doing all of this. Mm -hmm. And so let's think about, you know, developing the skills that you're going to need yeah. for all of this mentoring and these other pieces that you're going to do. And that was, I think that was probably, that was very good for, for me right. to replan. So. I've got a buddy who's uh, the exact same thing, multiple sclerosis and um, yeah. in, in the field too. And, uh, you know, uh, he constantly is dealing with stuff and it came to him later. Yeah. He was, I think he was probably already a full professor, but when he found out somewhere in his forties, probably. And he was like, Oh, that's a thing. Um, and you know, I mean, I, and I've dealt with, uh, because my, my vision's so poor, uh, which, you know, I shouldn't actually ride a bicycle. My, my profile picture has me with a bike helmet on. <laughs> it's really, I probably shouldn't do that. Um, so, I mean, the amazing thing I found was like you said, People say, okay, so how are we going to deal with this? I mean, I was, I, it doesn't work that, like that for everybody, mm -hmm. but I was lucky enough to have a supervisor who just said, okay, well, we'll have to work around that then. Um, you know, and the idea that I think one of the cool things is that like someone like you can be sort of a, I don't know, I hesitate to say role model, but I think maybe that's the right word. Um, you can maybe help some people understand that disability doesn't mean you can't do things. And there's a lot more things that you, the list of things you can do is a lot longer than the list of things you can't do. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. And with something like multiple sclerosis or anything that you live in a different version of your body and you never know <laughs> yeah, when something's going to yes. break, yes. when it's going to break, 
I think it gives you a lot of empathy. Like, I feel like that's my superpower in teaching is this right. amount of empathy. And the other thing is my sensory system is completely out of whack. Really? You know, and I feel that, yeah. So, and cause I also have this persistent migraine aura. So wow. um, navigate, you know, I lost all of my, my proprioception is really is out of whack. So I had to kind of have physical therapy and learn how to navigate in space again. And I think that actually helps working on cognition because that's, you don't, yeah. You don't have your single umwelt, really. You, yeah. you have some idea that all of these other ways of sensing the world are are possible. So that's really I, I hesitate to ever call anything. I mean, because people have said the same thing to me. Well, it's sort of a blessed thing. It's like no, no, no. <laughs> it's a pain um, in the ass. <laughs> no, it sucks. It's not a blessing. Shut up. Yeah. Or it's well, I, I get a lot. Well, but your hearing must be better, right? No, that's not how it works. It really isn't. That's what able-bodied people- You have superpowers, right? <laughs> able-bodied people just, tell themselves to make themselves feel good about people like you and me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sometimes I'm a little bit negative. But yeah, I, I think that it's- <laughs> I totally it's, get that. Yeah, you know, there are days. About one day a week, I go, God, I wish I could see better than this. And then, you know, I'm okay. Uh, when it's when you've been like, when you've had lousy vision for 56 years and you're 56 years old, you sort of get used to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what gets you really excited about a problem? Like when you come up with a new idea or you and your students, what is it that you say, yeah, let's do that? Oh, I am attracted to problems that other people find intractable. <laughs> so I like things that are, uh, seem undoable. Yep. And that also means you end up with a little niche because you're doing things a little bit differently than what other people might do. So, so I treat bees a little bit differently than your typical social insect person right. because I came to cognition working on birds. Right. And, right. Uh, yeah. So it's a different think, kind of background, I guess is the right yeah. word. I don't know. It's fun figuring out how to make something work. And when you're working on insects, you could, it's so easy to yeah. just build some kind of an apparatus and that doesn't work. Let's try this. And that's a fun process. To yeah, I bet. Things to work I bet. I mean, uh, yeah. And it's probably, I wouldn't say easier, but it's, it's tinkering is a lot more possible, I guess it is the is, right yeah. way to put it. Um, because necess- it isn't necessarily the case that you have to go buy a $3,000 operate chamber. Yeah. You're not having to cut through metal to. or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, that's right. It's a lot of work. I've done well, that. Well, of tin snips. Than, yeah, than you would, true, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But less chance of losing a finger because you're an idiot. Um, that's something that almost happened to me. That's why I was, you know, uh, cause I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not that bright. Um, the, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I really find that the fact that biologists and psychologists are sort of work together so much on these things now that there's, it's almost like, I mean, it's never going to be the case that it become our own thing, but it's, 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 there was a time when I felt like if I was talking to somebody, a, a biologist, I really didn't have a lot in common with them and that's gone. Um, and I think that's a great thing because I think more of us in psychology are getting, like I said, sort of getting the evolution stuff. A lot of that, you know, just to plug back again for my old PhD advisor, Sarah, that a lot of that's on, on her back. A lot of that's on Al Camel. A lot, there's a few other people. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and it's also in a lot of biologists too, John Krebs and, and, mm-hmm. and Alex Kaselnik, people like that. Um, yeah, I was, I was pretty lucky to come up like yeah. work with Russ Balda, who was partners yes. with Al Camel on so yeah. many things and went to Al's lab and learned some stuff. And then yeah. Dave Stevens was in uh, John Krebs lab yep. and it, it seemed to be 
a, a good spot to be trained. Yeah, for sure. Across, right. Across no, you, exactly. Um, before we get going, is there anything you want to plug? Is there, you got a website, you got your Twitter handle. What do you want to tell us? I, I don't really have anything to plug. <laughs> well, it's like, this is like, we're, it's like we're on a show. So you got to pretend that you're going to be playing <laughs> yeah. Vegas or something. Yeah. I love it when people read papers. So. There you go. Well, there'll be links to your papers, a link to your website. Um, and if anybody out there wants to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at D Broadbeck on Twitter. You can find other podcasts I do. Uh, like if you like Mad Men, every Friday, me and an English professor talk about Mad Men. He's never watched it before. And I just finished my 20th watch through last night. That's Sterling Cooper, oh. David, Steve, scdspodcast.com. Oh, are you interested in retro television? Best episode ever.com. And there's about six others. I'm not going to name them all. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on here. This was a great deal of fun. Uh, it's, it's fun all, to talk. It really is, right? It's also <laughs> been so rare that I get to talk to people other than my family in the last 18 months. By the way, I really love my family, but I really like talking to people who aren't them too. I, don't, I hope they can't hear me. Okay. <laughs> on that note, thank you very but much. But not everyone yeah, thank believes you. that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time, you're every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. share the same genome and so they would try to you know, we are a, a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case is a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the like the host and nevertheless they managed to use precise trickery to make them do what they want. <laughs>